0: Welcome to another gospel message from St. Luke's Anglican Church, Clovelly. You might like to keep that passage open. I'm going to spend some time thinking about it. Before I launch into that, though, I thought I would just quickly share... It was really nice to have Ash here with us this afternoon. And I shared this morning that Ash has been literally an answer to prayer for me over the last sort of year and a bit. About 12, or just over 12 months ago, we were really struggling to find people who were able to teach Scripture at Clovelly Public School... And I was in this place where I went home one night and I'm like, I really do not have any idea who we're going to get to fill this extra teaching role. Um, I've got, you know, more classes than I have teachers. Um, Dave knew this and uh, so I went home and I remember praying about this, thinking, hey, I don't know what's going to happen here. Um, And then the next morning, Dave sent me a message to say, hey, I've got this person, her name's Ash, you should give her a call because she's interested in teaching scripture. And I'm like... Thank you, Lord. Well, so I call Ash up and I say, Look, you know, I'm from St. Luke, so you, just, uh, you know, I hear that you might be interested in teaching Scripture. And she said, Yes, I've just finished doing my ministry apprenticeship and I would love to uh, come and join your Scripture team. And so she's been teaching Scripture at Clavelli with us for the last uh, year and a bit. And um, it's been a real delight to have her as part of that team because she's a really capable Bible teacher uh, as well as having gifts in admin as well. So there you go. Uh, It's a great privilege to have you with us, Ash. So uh, welcome to the team. Uh, As we come to have a look at this passage, I think it's important that we pray because this is one of those really big passages, and I think um, it'd be good just to pray that God would help us to understand his mind this afternoon. Our Father God, we do thank you so much that uh, you have spoken to us in your word. We thank you that Jesus prayed these words and that we might know your mind uh, your will for our lives. We do thank you uh, for the opportunity to, to peer into this, to think about it. And I pray that you would give us minds that are attentive and hearts that are willing to obey this afternoon. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a man who was talking to his wife on a particular Valentine's Day. They went out for dinner to a really nice restaurant. The place was beautiful. Uh, the ambiance was just right. And uh, they were having a really nice time together. In one of those rare moments, this particular guy was talking about how he felt. You know, all the things that go on inside his mind. Uh, were the things that he loved, the things that made him cry. The things that he was looking forward to. And she was listening intently as he poured his heart out. And, and by the end of the evening, things seemed to have gone well. And they hopped in the car and made their way home. Started to make their way home. And so he asked her what she thought of it all. What was, you know, what did you think? And she said to him, look, to be honest with you, I have no idea. I was listening to the couple that were sitting right behind you. Eavesdropping, right? She was just peering into someone else's conversation. Now, can you imagine if that happened? But the people that were sitting right beside them were royalty. Kate and Wills, for example, right? Imagine kind of eavesdropping on a conversation that they might have. A conversation with the gloves off where they kind of bear the things that are important to them with the guard down and you kind of get to hear in some of that conversation, to peer into it, to listen along to it. Now, I don't know if you've ever you know, indulged in eavesdropping, maybe you'd like not like to admit it before or you just kind of overheard someone's conversation and that conversation has turned to something really intimate and you feel a little bit a little bit awkward. It's a bit intrusive because what they're talking about is so profound and so significant. And I've got to say that that's a little bit like how I felt as I started to read John chapter 17. Eavesdropping on royalty. Because what we get to see in this passage is is what God is like deep down inside. We get to hear his heart Jesus' heart for his followers. So let me just set the scene for a minute. We've been working our way through John's Gospel, or the second half of John's Gospel, over this term, uh, this, this last few weeks. And what it says at the start of this chapter is that when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. What is the these words he's talking about? Well, the last three chapters, basically time has slowed down. We've just been thinking about one night, The night before Jesus is about to die. now, last week we had a delightful visit from some missionaries. Uh, The Lovells came to visit us. And so we skipped chapter 16. We didn't get to hear what uh, happened in that chapter. So let me just really quickly recap what happened. You see, Jesus in that chapter explains that it is really good for him to go away, for him to be leaving. Why is that? Because he's going to send his spirit his spirit to come and live in his disciples. He'll be their helper, their guide, their counsellor, their advocate. The one who will point them into all truth. And when you know you're about to die just like Jesus does, well, you don't waste time. If you have the opportunity to, you, you spend time with the people that you, that you love the most. And so this prayer that we hear from Jesus, well, has three main sections. Three main sections. That's on your outline there, which you would have gotten the way in. And Jesus initially prays, and he prays this surprising prayer for glory, which secondly brings about a special unity for the disciples and a life-changing prayer for us. But if you're someone who finds all those words too confusing, that's okay. Just think about the three things, right? He prays for glory, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for us. So let's have a look and just see what he prays. His surprising prayer for glory. We read the first half of verse 1, so to continue along. Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven and he says, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And now just skip your eyes down to the end of that paragraph. Verse 5 because he says and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that you with the glory that i had with you before the world existed and see jesus prays that god would glorify him and that he would glorify god and he sort of tips the hat and he says this is the kind of glory that existed between them before anything was made before anything was made now, in some ways, this prayer sounds a little bit like, when I first read it, it's a little bit like an arrogant thing to pray. Glorify your son. Why does Jesus pray for God to glorify him? I mean, when I'm teaching my children how to pray, this is not the kind of prayer that I get them to pray, right? Oh, dear God, please glorify me because I'm so amazing. That's not what I do. Now I think what's so surprising about this prayer is that Jesus when he prays for God to bring about his glory, he's praying for God to bring about his death. Jesus' glory is going to come by the way of the cross. And this is the hour that Jesus is talking about. Glorify your son. It's not a prayer of arrogance. It's not, a, it's not something that's puffing Jesus up, but a prayer of incredible self-giving love. That's hardly something that we would say is glorious. Often when we think of glory, we think of fame or praise or, you know, honor, those kinds of terms. The last little while the Winter Olympics has been on, Larissa and Larissa, my wife and I enjoyed watching a few of those Olympic events. And you know, the, you get the backstory of these people who've trained for so long to to get all the way to the Olympics and they're competing in their favorite event and they, they compete and they work really hard and they get to the final of whatever event they, they've chosen. And they manage to win. And, and everyone cheers and they get the gold medal around their neck and they receive Olympic glory. The fame and praise of having won something so incredible. And the Bible, when it uses that term glory, it often has that meaning of fame or praise. But it also has other meanings as well, other kind of range of meaning. It can refer to something that's just beautiful or bright or full of splendor. In the Old Testament, the word glory has the the kind of idea of, of weightiness or significance or literally heaviness. That's what glory means. And Jesus here is praying that his cross of shame and torture and evil, that that would be the cross of glory and of honor and of good. Because it's going to demonstrate His greatness and his beauty, because the whole world will see and experience the love of God as Jesus conquers death and sin and brings life. And verse five helps us understand that this hour of glory will also pave the way to Jesus' triumphant return and sorry, triumphant resurrection and return to the Father. His glory will also be about His resurrection and return to God. Now I just want to pause and think about what this says to us about God. Because Jesus is praying to His Father about their relationship. Now just think about what this is saying about the God of the Bible. Now regardless of where where you find yourself with God this afternoon, this is really important to understand, right? Because the Bible describes God as being... One God who exists in three persons. Right? Father, Son, and Spirit. They are all equally God, and yet they are distinct. That's what the Bible calls Trinity, right? Now if that kind of makes your mind hurt a little bit, because one doesn't equal three, and I get the logic is, it doesn't kind of make sense in our mathematical minds, but God is bigger than us. He's something completely different. But let's say, for example, that the God that we found out about was a unipersonal God. Right? There was just one person. If that was the God of the Bible, then God wouldn't have known love until he created this world. Now why is that? Because you need relationships for love to exist, don't you? You can't love someone without having someone to love. With that kind of God, with a unipersonal God, love would have been optional, but not the God of the Bible. God exists in a community of loving relationships, loving relationships. He's a a community of other person-centered love. Now I don't know about you, but that's the kind of God that I'd like to know. A God who is love in and of himself. That kind of blows my mind a little bit, but in no other faith system, no other religion do we get, do we find a God like the God of the Bible? Because, you know what, in our relationships, we are so often looking to please ourselves, aren't we? Even in the best marriages, even in the best friendships or relationships, you still look out for number one. But not God. honor and love and delight and adoration are all at the heart of who God is and it says Jesus gives his life that this God will be glorified because in his death people will find eternal life and that's what it says there in verse 2 just really quickly do you see what he says there that God has given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given This is a great memory verse. I like teaching kids this verse, uh, John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, eternal life is to know God. Now in the Bible, that word know is is not just about knowing about someone. Yeah, I can kind of describe something about them, but, but to have intimacy with them, to have fellowship with them, to know them so deeply. All right, so we've seen Jesus' surprising prayer for glory. What it does is it brings about a special unity for his disciples. And we're not going to th- go through all these verses in detail. There's so much in these verses. I hope you get a chance to look at them a little bit more in community groups this week. But I want to point out four things that Jesus especially prays for his disciples. And Jesus prays for unity, for joy, for holiness, and for mission, right? Unity, joy, holiness, and mission. So, see, firstly, there in verse 11, Jesus prays that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, clearly, they can't share in everything that God is. But what he's praying for is that they will share a unity of purpose, of love, of holiness, and of truth. And see, not only does Jesus here pray for oneness, for unity, he prays for protection from the things that might cause disunity. Let's kind of have a think about that for a sec. What are some of the things that might cause disunity? Well, he's asking that there will be no jealousy or hatred. He's asking that there will be no bitterness or divisiveness, no impatience, no competitiveness, any of those things that would cause disunity amongst the disciples. And they need this prayer, don't they? As they're sent out from Jesus, uh, he's about to go to the Father. They need this prayer. I mean, the disciples are hardly a model of Christian discipleship up to this point. They're hardly the picture-perfect Christians, the people you put on the poster. Think about just this night, the night we've been looking at the last term, the last few weeks or so. We've seen Peter's refusal to let Jesus wash his feet. We've we've seen Thomas doubt really what Jesus is saying. We've seen Philip ask. Jesus to show him the way. And yet, despite their ignorance and their imperfect faith, Jesus prays back in verse 8 in this chapter, he says, I've given them the words that you gave me, and they receive them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. And this really struck me as I was reading this passage this week. And Jesus knows exactly who his disciples are. And yet he graciously prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And I was thinking, this is amazing, right, that even in my weakest moments, the times where I don't get it fully right, when my heart doubts, when I'm prone to wander, that Jesus still has such a special love for a sinner such as me, just as he did for his disciples. So Jesus prays for unity and secondly, he prays for joy. Have a look there at verse 13. Verse 13. He says, I'm coming, now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus gives an indication of why it is that we get to overhear this prayer. Why has it been written down and recorded for us? Why did the disciples get to overhear what Jesus prays? Well, so that his joy, his joy might be fulfilled in them. That as they get to see this prayer come to fruition in their lifetime, well, what a joy that would have been. What a joy it would have been to, to see Jesus' prayer on this night happen over the next little while, the, the, the years to come, and even after their lifetime. Right, so Jesus prays for unity, for joy. He prays, we're going to bundle these two together, he prays for their holiness and for mission. Verse 17, have a look with me there, verse 17. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Right? Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. That word sanctify literally means to set apart for a particular purpose. Now what's the purpose here? Well, it's to be set apart for Jesus' purposes. Set apart for the truth. Just as Jesus had set himself apart to do the will of God, to proclaim the truth of God, so he's praying that they too would be set apart for his work. That they would go and proclaim the good news of sins forgiven and life eternal. And do you know what? It's precisely because the disciples did what Jesus prayed in this prayer that you're sitting here this afternoon because they shared the truth of Jesus and people came to believe in him and that Jesus' church is being built day by day, person by person. A few hundred years ago lived a man named John Knox. I think we got a photo of him. Well, not a photo. There was no photos in 1572. But just imagine there was and he would have looked something like this. John Knox was the man who was responsible for bringing the Protestant Reformation to Scotland. And at around uh, the age of age 58, he was on his deathbed, effectively. This is 1572. Around five o'clock in the evening, he called his wife, Margaret, into, into the room. And earlier he'd asked for a reading of Isaiah 53, those sweet gospel words that He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. But finally, he asked his wife to read his beloved, what he called his first anchor, John chapter 17. You see, 30 years earlier, Knox came out of Reformed faith from Roman Catholicism. And he said, this is where I cast my first anchor. And Margaret read this chapter, John 17, for him. And at the end, John Knox said, is that not the most comfortable chapter? You see, here is where John Knox saw the roots of Christ's commitment to keep those who who the Father had given to him, had sent him. And to John Knox, death came about six hours later. But he was right. This is an amazing place to cast your first anchor because do you know what? In this chapter, Jesus doesn't just pray for his own glory and for the glory of God. He doesn't just pray for his disciples. But this, his last six verses or so, Jesus prays for you. Jesus, knowing what was going to happen to him, all this time later, knowing that you would put your trust in Jesus if you're someone who calls yourself a Christian, that Jesus, in these verses, is praying for you. And pay attention to these verses, because this is Jesus' prayer for you. Do you see there in verse 20? Jesus says, I don't ask for these only, his disciples only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Now in one sense, what Jesus is doing is he's praying for similar things to what he prayed for his disciples. And there are some repeated themes because the first petition, the first thing that Jesus prays for is for unity. Have a look with me at verse 23. And Jesus Jesus says, I in them, he's praying for unity, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that even... So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Brothers and sisters, the unity that we are to have is the unity that God the Father and God the Son share. Now we get a sense of unity sometimes in life, right? Like imagine that you go to the SCG, uh, to a Swans match or to a Wobbies match and you're kind of there and you're red and white or you're green and gold and you're there with all the other people who are supporting the same team as you. This is a good moment, right, because your team is winning and they score a goal or they score a try or they kick you know, something amazing and everyone kind of rises as one and you're cheering and there's streamers and you're, you know, everything's going, we have a sense of unity, that's, you know, rising together, we are united together. This happened a few years ago for me when we were at the Sydney Olympics. It's quite a few years ago now, right? The Sydney Olympics. And I was at the soccer. And I remember I uh, was with my family and I was sitting next to some guy that I didn't know. And Australia managed to score a goal in the soccer. And I remember like everyone stood up and we were cheering because this is the Olympics in Sydney. We were all cheering. And then I just started hugging this random stranger because we were united, right? That's what unity looks like at a sporting match. But this unity is so much better and so much more significant than even that kind of unity if you're into sport. Because the unity that Jesus is talking about here is unique. It's a unity that only comes because we are united in Christ. United in Christ. What Jesus is praying for here is that we might be brought together into the oneness of God. This is a big prayer, right? People young and old, people male and female from different nations and nationalities and cultures and tribes and people groups, people from everywhere united in the oneness and love of God for people who have believed in the truth of Christ. That's what what Jesus prays for his church. This is an incredible thing to pray because one of our most basic desires is a place to belong, isn't it? a place to know and to be known for who we are. And because God's church is so much more than just the fact that we share a common interest, that we've signed up to the same email, the same club, whatever it is, we are brought into oneness, to fellowship with each other because we are brought into Christ. Now, just this week, I came across... um, an article written by a guy named Jason Dubois I'd never heard of him before. He's a secular author. And he wrote an article, an essay, I guess. It's kind of a long article, called You Can't Fake It. right? And he starts his article. I'm going to sort of quote some sections of it because I, th- I found it really thought-provoking from someone who's not a Christian. Just listen to what he says. He starts with a question. He says, why are we such a mess? Why, despite all the means for happiness and well-lived lives and positive vibes, are we still... It's good questions, right? Listen to what he says. And this is a whole bunch of stuff, but he says this. We've got a self-help culture that constantly counsels that everyone is a ray of brilliant light that alone can shine the way through a dark world. We've got an increasingly awakened world of marketing and goods that sells its products by selling you to yourself. He says a gym that I passed by sometimes used to have a sign that said join the body acceptance movement which is slightly ironic right because they neglect the fact that if we all accepted our bodies there would be no such thing as a gym we've got a med- medical industry busily developing all manner of powerful drugs to manage all of this anxiety and insecurity feelings of in- inadequacy we've got social media tools to craft to p- to craft and perfect and share an idealized vision of ourselves to put our best fo- foot forward with digital precision. And none of it works. Now, this is where he kind of goes a bit deeper, right? Now, listen to what he says. He says, I've known people in my life who were the most outwardly secure and confident, who never betrayed a hint of doubt or guilt or remorse, who projected cool at all times, who were academically and professionally successful, who had money and respect. And who cultivated the kinds of micro celebrity celebrity that are common to contemporary life. And yet, the flow of their life revealed that inside they hated themselves fully and completely. None of that stuff mattered, because none of it could get at the core self hatred within. They could never fool themselves. And he says, I wonder if this is the human condition. That's some profound thoughts for a secular author, right? But he gets at so many of the things that our world and sometimes that we turn to. So many of the things that we turn to for a place for belonging that don't deliver. But when Jesus prays for us, he prays not only that we would be one just as the Father and the Son are one, He's praying that we would know that Jesus was the one who was forsaken so that we might truly belong. And that in the unity that we have by belonging together, that the world might know that Jesus was sent and that God has loved us even as the Father has loved the Son. You see, Jesus' prayers that we'd be caught up in the love of God and it's true that one day we'll know that love perfectly. But Jesus isn't just praying about the future. He's praying that the love that we show to one another, the unity that we have together in Christ, would be a love that that a watching world just is so captivated by. And my prayer for us as a church is that we would cast our first anchor into that love the love that the Father has for the Son. That we would treasure Christ above all else so that our hearts and our homes and our wallets, everything that we have would be open to those in need. For those of you who who are here today who don't yet know Jesus, we're so glad that you're here and we hope you experience some of that unity and love that we have for each other, as imperfect as it is. But for anyone who does not yet know Jesus, whether you are here today or whether it's people in our community, the people that we'll meet at Fun in the Park, the people that are in your families or your neighborhoods or your workplaces, the people that you live next door to, that they would see that you live so differently because of the way that you love so sacrificially, that they would be drawn to see the glory of King Jesus. Maybe eavesdropping on the king isn't so bad at all after all. Let me pray for us. Our Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to eavesdrop on royalty, to overhear Jesus' prayer. And Father God, we pray that you would help us to be united in the love that the Father has for the Son. What an incredible privilege it is to know and to be known by your Son, Jesus. To truly belong. And we look forward to that day when that love will be perfected. And until that day, we pray you'd help us to love each other like this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about St. Luke's Anglican Church, please visit www.clovelly.org.au.